Electrician Conversations, a podcast for electricians hosted by an electrician. The Electrical Association is committed to keeping electricians in the know about the latest developments in the industry. Experts will be on to help answer the tough questions, talk shop, and give tips to make your jobs work. Greetings, I would like to welcome you to another podcast presentation of Sparking Conversation by the Electrical Association. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Once again, I'd like to thank you for choosing this Electrical Association podcast for one of the sources of information for things going on in the electrical trade. I'd also like to extend a big thanks to Federated Insurance for being our sponsor for this and many activities of the Electrical Association. Today's presentation features an individual who has already enlightened us a few times on legal matters in the past. I would like to welcome to our microphone, Ms. Kate Bischoff. Kate is founder and CEO of Kate Bischoff, LLC. She is a human resource professional, an employment law attorney, and an adjunct professor of HR compliance. Welcome, Kate, to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be back. Well, it's nice to have you, and as always, it's much fun because of your knowledge and your and your lightheartedness of what's going on <laughs> in the industry. We appreciate that. It's fun. So, Katie, the total legalization of marijuana has occurred now in about 31 states, and there are about six states where it is totally illegal, and the other 13 states have accepted it in varying degrees. Minnesota will officially legalize recreational use and possession on July 1st. This one. August 1. Thank you for that kind correction. Uh, this pres presents some concerns, of course, for employers and electricians. What changes to company rules need to be addressed by employers for the safety and good of all employees? Well, first of all, I want to state that weed is already in workplaces. It's already in it. Like the idea that marijuana has not existed in a workplace is just a fallacy that is totally wrong. Like weed is already in workplaces. We expect that there's going to be an increase initially with the full legalization of weed, but it's not going to be as devastating as um, some littles are calling it. What will need to change are a couple of policies around drug testing, particularly around the issue of pre-employment drug testing. Minnesota will have an outright ban on pre-employment drug testing for all non-safety sensitive positions as of August 1. So you need to be prepared to take that off. Now, are electricians safety sensitive positions? By the very nature, they absolutely are. However, you're going to want to be careful about how you handle the actual drug testing because we know that there is no test out there, absolutely no test out there that will test to determine whether someone is high right now, okay? So if you hire me to be an electrician, please don't. I'm horrible at it, okay? But if you did hire me to be an electrician and you said, Kate, we need you to go pee in a cup to figure out if you are on any kinds of drugs, lawful or unlawful, and I go in and I pee in the cup, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to test positive for THC. Because within the last 28 days, I've had THC in the form of a seltzer and probably a gummy, okay? So because I have more fat than the average bear on my body, the THC is going to last longer in my system. Now, 
there are going to be drug testing folks out there who are going to be able to tell you, oh, but we'll be able to tell you what levels they're at. So that will give you a better indication of to whether or not they're high. Bullshit. It is not true. Levels do not tell you whether or not someone is high or not because we all metabolize marijuana in different ways. Again, based upon body fat, based upon various levels of how we metabolize stuff in general. Okay, so there is no test to tell whether or not someone is high right now. All they can tell you is whether or not THC has been in their system. Now, if you are a medicinal user and THC is in your system, Minnesota law would require you to provide some sort of protections for those individuals, provided they are on the registry in Minnesota and they don't have marijuana on them or they didn't take it prior to coming to work or are high at work, okay? So those limitations exist for medicinal users. Even if they're in safety-sensitive positions, you're going to be required to have some sort of other mechanism in place to determine whether or not they're high. For your non-medicinal users, you run into the problem of Minnesota's lawful consumable statute, 181.938. This statute is a relic from the tobacco lobby, where in the 1970s and 80s, the lobbyists worked really hard to get this statute on the books that says, if I can lawfully consume something during off work time and off work premises. You cannot discipline me for lawful consumption of that product. THC is a lawful consumables in the state of Minnesota and it has been since 2022. So if I lawfully have a seltzer or a gummy and I test positive and I tell you I did it off work during off work time, then you cannot discipline me for it, okay? Simply put, you can't. That's what the law says. So for the bulk of my clients, what they're moving to is not doing any form of THC drug testing. They may still do drug testing on the four or nine panel, moving from a five or nine pan or 10 panel down one so they don't test for THC to try to be compliant with this no pre-employment testing. But then what they do is they train managers on what being high looks like. Do they look like Cheech and Chong who are now selling gummies nationwide? Do they smell bad? Do they have slurred speech? Do they lack coordination? Do they sound paranoid or particularly giddy? If those are the situations, they know the person is not ready to work that day. They give them a ride home and they discipline them. They get to discipline people for not being ready to work. As soon as you do the drug testing in the state of Minnesota, you lose that ability to discipline because you have to offer the individual the opportunity to go to rehab first before you can take any disciplinary action. So you can talk to an individual, see whether or not they have the coordination available to them, whether they're thinking clearly, whether they smell or look bad, then say, yes, please go drive that ditch witch today. Yes, please go pull a bunch of wire that could be hot. Please go do those things because you appear ready to work. Also, this ready to work standard tells whether someone even slept well the night before, whether or not they're drunk, whether or not they're having a medical emergency, whether or not they have their uniform on or the right shoes with the steel toes, etc. You can use this ready to work analysis in a variety of different ways. 
But if you choose to continue doing testing, note that there's a bunch of pitfalls. One, the test is not gonna tell you whether or not they're high right now. Two, they may be lawfully consuming things. That means that you can't take disciplinary action because they did it during off-work time and off-work premises, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of hoops you have to jump through, but ready to work is the standard I see most folks going to. Okay, well, that's a pile of information to mull through, <laughs> but I do have a couple questions here. <laughs> First Bring one's on. a pretty, pretty an easy one, I think. But Kate, you mentioned that I mean, if if I'm going to discipline them, I have to offer them rehab first. Is that at the employer's expense or at the employee's expense? The rehab. The, the rehab is the employee's expense. It's likely covered by any medical insurance you're providing them. But again, the rehab first is only if you've done the test. Okay. Uh, only if I don't. Okay. I've got that. And then when you're talking about the assessment of the employee that may appear impaired, uh, is, is that something that can remain on his record or is that just a one-time deal? I can make that test or that reassessment. If I just perceive that he may be slurring his speech, he may not be cognitive of certain items I talk about. Uh, once I've done that, can I can I build a case against the person? Not that I'm an ad advocating doing that. Believe me, I'm not. But my thought is this, you know, if I've got a problematic employee here that could eventually really cost my business some serious money from accidents, incidents, or injuries arising out of the use of the marijuana, do I have any recourse to potentially build a case against him from previous events? Absolutely. <laughs> if I've Thank got you. an employee... If I have an employee who comes to work smelling like marijuana, I can say, dude, you smell like marijuana. Well, I haven't smoked it. I'm sorry. I can't put you on the work site. I'm going to drive you home and you're going to get disciplined for it. It's going to be a final warning. You can also okay. terminate for that stuff. Like this idea go. that we cannot take any action for someone um, is ridiculous. The idea that we have to drug test is silly. You can always take action when someone's behavior does not appropriate for the workplace. I agree. And, and you know, I, I think you very well laid that out because, you know, it, it's here. I mean, for for the, the, the person that is not necessarily approving of it or accepting it, it's here. It's going to stay. I think we have to deal with it and just do the best we can. But one thing Tweedia brought up was safety-sensitive positions. That is uh, rhetorical in some respects, simply because what you perceive to be that, I may not, or vice versa. Do we have to lay that out? So if you're like, like you mentioned, running the the, the trencher, or let's say I'm running a, a, a scissor lifter, or areas that take some hand-eye coordination that is must be pretty keen and not impaired by other stimulus, I guess. How do we do, is that something we should document and, and explain to employees what, this is safety sensitive. If you're on it, get out of here. You can't do it. How does that work? What would be the best way to approach that? So I want you to be really reasonable as to what is and is not a safety sensitive position. Your accountant, yeah. your office manager, not safety sensitive positions. Your receptionist, not a safety sensitive position. Your electricians who are working with hot fully electrically charged stuff, safety sensitive mm -hmm. positions. And they should know that. That should be in job descriptions. That should be in announcements of job positions that you have open, um, that these are safety sensitive positions. But you should be cognizant that if you're going to designate something as a safety sensitive position, that you're going to be doing drug testing related to it, whether it's pre-employment or reasonable suspicion testing going forward, you have to tell people that. Now, 
I will say there is a recruiting advantage to removing testing or particularly related to THC or weed testing from your requirements. If you say we're not going to test for weed, but we are going to make sure that you are safe before you start operating any machinery, you can increase your applicant pool. I'll tell you a quick story. I'm driving between Fargo and Bismarck. If anyone's ever made that drive, you want to poke your eyes out with boredom. But I see this big billboard that says, we don't test for weed, apply here. It was a manufacturing plant with lots and lots of safety sensitive positions. Because I had to stare at that billboard for a solid 20 minutes because there was nothing else to look at. I called them and said, hey, I see that you don't test for weed and you're using it as a recruitment tool. Has it improved your applicant pool? And their response was, we got 20% more applicants as soon as we put that billboard up. That's a significant significant increase. That is a much bigger applicant pool than they ever had. But they also are making sure people aren't high. They're having the quote unquote toolbox talk and they're talking about what the plan is for the day, but they're also evaluating whether people are coherent, paying attention, whether or not they smell bad, whether or not they have the bloodshot eyes, et cetera. And in those conversations, you can see when someone is ready to work in a safe position or if they're safe to work, right? So you don't need to be doing the testing to make that determination. As long as your managers, your four persons, and your journey workers understand what being high looks like, they can make determinations whether someone should be using those tools or getting into the heavy equipment, et cetera. Okay. Kate, I got a question that's kind of a little off the cuff, and that has to do with law enforcement's (laughs) view of it. Um, Law enforcement, of course, has always had somewhat of a negative uh, view simply because it's it's not the individual's activities themselves. However, when they get behind the wheel of a vehicle, we've got a whole new scenario of potential problems associated with driving, of course, and and it kind of extrapolates from alcohol-related crashes. Now we have the marijuana-related crashes. My concern, or just feel your thoughts out on it. Do you think that with the legalization of this that we're going to see a impaired driver uh, height climbing or staying the same? It's about staying the same. If we look at studies out of Washington and Colorado specifically, um, the fatal accidents that happen most often related to marijuana often include the combination of marijuana and alcohol. There are very few fatalities that comes directly and only from THC. Now, the Minnesota legislature has devoted millions of dollars to law enforcement for help them determine when someone is high. They They will go to academy to make those kinds of assessments to learn how to make those kinds of assessments, I should say. Um, And so Minnesota is taking this seriously from a safety perspective in driving. But if we look at the studies that came out of Washington State and Colorado, we didn't see the significant increase. And in fact, we saw a significant decrease in fatalities for employees between the ages of 18 and 45, mostly because people replaced their oxycodone and their other opioids with marijuana. And so marijuana reduced that pain level and we saw much fewer, like a 19% decrease in fatalities once marijuana was legalized in those states. You open a door for a question relative to the gateway drug. Of course, we've all heard that (laughs) argument. I know, it's an Uh, old question. you are from the 1980s, we can tell. I am. Yes. (laughs) actually farther back but we won't go there but but my thought is we've heard the gateway drug discussion and it's uh the older generation will use that as a negative cause for marijuana 
tell me, is there any truth to it? Or was there ever any truth to it? I don't think so. I think we have seen a significant shift in public opinion related to recreational marijuana. Um, I believe the a couple of the latest studies that I've read show that 67% of folks believe marijuana should be legalized. Um, and that's a pretty big majority of folks, including large chunks of the old school folks. Um, and so I don't believe that it is a gateway drug. I and only started using marijuana because I am a horrible sleeper. Um, once I turned to age of 40, if I'm lucky, I get four hours of sleep at night. If I have a little weed, I might get to six. It's amazing. Um, and so I don't see this as the, we're going to be legalizing many, many, many more things coming out of this. Drugs, particularly fentanyl and opioids and meth are plagues upon our society. We see more than 40,000 people die every year because of overdoses. But when we add marijuana to the legalized piece, we see an actual drop in those overdoses so that this is a good thing for the state overall. Um, so I don't see it as a gateway drug. I don't think that argument ever really held much water um, because folks who use marijuana use marijuana for a variety of different reasons and don't necessarily see those other drugs as attractive. Okay. Well, Kate, here, here's one that talks about kind of going back to the acceptance of marijuana in Minnesota. And, and I asked that uh, we were really slow in accepting it marijuana, marijuana in the state of Minnesota. And I just wonder, is that a result of a, let's wait and see how the other states are dealing with it? Or was, I, I guess, what was the slowdown? Because as obviously, as you've indicated, there's been a, a major acceptance of it in the state. Was there any cause for it as it slowed down prior to some of the other states picking it up? Well, Mike, I don't think you're going to like my answer. Um, the main reason why marijuana was not accepted in the state of Minnesota for so long is because it was a political wedge issue. As we've seen in financial statements, the Minnesota GOP helped fund the third-party legalized weed organizations like the Green Party and to draw Democratic voters from Democratic candidates, and that was effective for a long time. And once we had a Democratic majority in the legislature and the governor with the trifecta, it was easy to get this bill passed through. And the Minnesota House of Representatives had been Democratic for several years and had passed marijuana legalization off the floor once. It was the Senate that held a GOP majority that refused to take it up. The governor has been willing to sign this bill for quite some time. And once there was the trifecta, this was going to be an inevitability. The numbers about acceptance have changed over time, but it's been over 60% for some time in the state of Minnesota. Um, so the reason was a political one for why we haven't legalized. Now, I'm super excited that Minnesota does not have a neighbor that is legalized because we have or will have a 10% tax on THC products. And that those tax dollars coming in from the Dakotas, Iowa, and Wisconsin, I am happy to take cheesehead money any moment. We are going to raise a lot of tax revenue with this, particularly from our neighbors. And so I am excited about us being a leader up here in the upper Midwest. You know, it was one of my questions, Kate, is, the, of course, when there's a new income into the state, oftentimes it's earmarked for special projects, bridges, education, drug enforcement, whatever. Have they announced any that you're aware of what the income from this licensing and the sales will actually be used for? 
You know what? They have given some indications and I don't remember them off the top of my head because I'm more busy getting my clients uh, compliant with it. Uh, but I do think it. the last thing I read, it was like $15 billion within the first 10 years of this. So it's not a small amount of money um, that will be going to a variety of different causes, particularly to maintain the machinery necessary to keep it legalized, like the Office of Cannabis Management that will you know, crop up as a new department here for the state. Kate, does the federal government have their hand open as well on this, or is this something that is regulated and kept by the states? Uh, this is something that is regulated by the federal government. If you have CDL drivers, your CDL drivers are going to still be under the Department of Transportation and the Federal Safe Highway. I can't, I never get that agency correctly right, but they're still going to be subject to federal law. Now, President Biden has indicated some changes to how marijuana will be treated, particularly because right now marijuana is a Schedule One narcotic and um, fentanyl is a Schedule Two. We know that fentanyl is way more dangerous than uh, marijuana. Nobody dies from marijuana where they die regularly on fentanyl. So President Biden has made some indications that he wants to see those things change through executive order, like evaluating where marijuana should be on the schedules. But we don't see big, broad changes coming anytime soon out of Congress on this because Congress is going to have to change some legislation. Now, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has introduced a law to legalize marijuana, but that's not going anywhere anytime soon. I think we're at least five years away from the feds taking significant changes on this. You know, I, I don't know that that's a bad choice. I think that's the expert way to go simply because we don't we certainly want to tell a state you have to sell marijuana. There may be some <laughs> rather, rather interesting repercussions from something like that, to say the least. Uh, so, well, violations of laws related to marijuana, that is possession in excess of the legal amount that you can keep and minor possession and driving under the influence and other similar statutes have about the same fine structure. Is that going to be a little bit more worse? How's that going to work? Well, I the criminal aspects of it are going to be over a certain amount that you can possess. Already, marijuana is decriminalized in the city of Minneapolis where you can possess a, a small amount, a personal use amount of marijuana um, for your own personal use without any criminal penalties in the city of Minneapolis. What we will see is that we'll see expungement of any possession or use violations. Probably not the dealing of it. That will probably be more difficult to expunge. But anybody who's been criminally prosecuted for possession of marijuana will be able to expunge their criminal records of that so that it won't even come up on background checks uh, going forward. But those penalties for having more, we'll see how those shake out really. Um, this is a, a particularly important piece to former leader of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, Warren Limmer, um, he was got the amount of weed wrong. Like two pounds of weed would practically fill this table that I'm standing at. So yeah, there, <laughs> it's, it's, it's silly about how we calculate the amounts, but it, we'll, we'll see criminal penalties going forward for still having too much. Sure. Well, that certainly makes sense. And, you know, can't have too much of a good thing in some people's minds while others would say... <laughs> You got way too much, friend. You got to get <laughs> rid of it or go to jail or something. Interesting. Uh, I, I guess one other thing, Kate, uh, you mentioned it. You kind of touched on it. You don't think there'll ever be a, a time when the state of Minnesota or any state, for that matter, actually adopts any more stricter or harder drugs. Is, is that 
pretty positive? Can we take that to the bank, do you think? Well, I think there's some action on psychedelics because we've seen some medicinal uses of psychedelics, particularly around issues of PTSD um, and uh, depression and anxiety. But I don't see us legalizing cocaine anytime soon or heroin or fentanyl or meth. Um, we don't know that there are lots of medicinal uses for that. So while we see some changes on psychedelics and LSD and stuff, I don't think we're going to see cocaine or heroin. Uh, you can certainly, we can, you can take that to the bank and then hold me accountable in 10 years time when we legalize all that stuff. But I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I'll give you a call. <laughs> no, interesting. I, I just, I'm not concerned. I, I I think that the one thing about it, the government's regulating it, and some could say you couldn't have a worse regulator, but who else are you going to get, I guess, you know? Uh, I, th I think it's going to be reasonably managed to a point where it's going to be safe. There's always going to be exclusions, you know? I think if we turn the clocks way back and looked at alcohol's regulation and, and their when we got out of prohibition, wow, that was a magical day for a lot of people. And, and I, I think this is kind of going to be similar and it's going to be regulated. There's going to be bumps because we're all human. I think we're, we're in that position where we really can't turn our heads and think anything different. Well, Kate, your knowledge and perception of this formidable and most interesting subject has been really interesting, I think, for contractors. I've learned some things I didn't know, and I, I appreciate you spending your time with doing that for us. So, um, as another program draws to a close, I'd like to thank our guest, Kate Bischoff, CEO of Kate Bish of LL or LLC, for taking time out of her busy schedule to share with our listeners information about changing laws and marijuana, a major change as we've seen. Thank you, Kate. Are there any final messages you'd care to leave with our listeners? No, I think we're going to treat THC and marijuana like we treat alcohol and that we'll, within a very short period of time, we'll know what it is to be high and what it looks like. And so we can keep our workplaces safe without the over-reliance on drug testing on this topic. So it'll be a short while, but we'll be able to pick it up pretty quick here. But thanks for having me. Well, I, I don't think we could have had a more informed and knowledgeable lawyer tell us about marijuana than yourself. It's it's certainly been very pleasurable to listen to your thoughts on it, and I thank you for being here. So I would like to thank our executive producer, Katie Grams, for her work behind the scenes to make this podcast happen. Also, a big thank you to Federated Insurance, who sponsored this presentation. With that, I wish you all safe travel until you can join us again for another Electrical Association Sparkin' Conversations. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Good day. Sparkin' Conversations was a production of the Electrical Association. For more information, visit www.electricalassociation.com. <laughs>